be a little bit like if the BSA said to us, sorry guys, uh, you can't be a club anymore. It would be a bit like saying, you can't book rooms anymore, uh, you can't have an official presence down in the SU, uh, you can't come to O-Week and have a stall. Uh, all those sort of things that we just do, that we can do on campus, because we're an official club. Uh, we wouldn't be able to do them. Uh, you've been de-recognised. No longer a club is what has been said uh, to the guys over there in, in IVCF. It's pretty full-on, isn't it? Uh, to get de-recognised like that. I reckon if it happened to us, it would probably kind of knock the wind out of our sails a bit. I mean, you know, we've just elected a new servant team. We're feeling pretty good about that. feeling a bit sad. I'm feeling a bit sad about the old team, but I like the new team. We'll get to know each other. Um, that'll be fun. But imagine if we got de-recognised. I mean, that would just really knock the wind out of our sails, I reckon. Um, why has this happened at Cal State? Uh, well, it's happened... Uh, because IVCF, they actually insist that the leaders of their group, like we had up here tonight, they insist that the leaders of their group actually hold to Christian belief. Uh, they get them to sign a doctrinal basis, just like we do. Uh, we do exactly the same thing. We want our leaders to be firm in their faith. They're going to lead a Christian group. That makes sense, right? Well, the head honchos at Cal State Uni over in America, uh, they say... No, that's actually discriminatory. It's discriminatory, uh, in their words, uh, that you would only allow someone to be a leader of a group who holds to a particular set of beliefs. Uh, one of the leaders of IVCF says this. He says, well, religious organisations can exist. They are welcome, as long as they're malleable. Uh, as long as their leaders don't need to profess anything in particular, as long as they can be governed by sheer democracy and adjust to popular trends, as long as they didn't prioritise theological stability. So they can exist, but the leaders can't have any of that going on. Uh, This is happening in America right now. Uh, Opposition to the gospel. And I wonder, you know, if it happened here in Australia, in Bendigo, I wonder if, if we got de-recognised. The question I want to ask is, how would we react to that? How would we go? Uh, do you reckon, you know, would we, would we keep trying to meet together? Would we keep going as Christians? Would we keep trying to do what we do, share Jesus on campus, encourage each other to stay on track as a bunch of uni students? Would we keep going with that? I, I hope we would. I pray that we would. I mean, I actually think that if this is happening in America, then maybe it's not too far away from happening here in Australia. Uh, the question you see I want us to wrestle with tonight, uh, as we kind of look in this Staying on Track series, the question I want us to wrestle with is, how do you actually keep going when opposition like that happens? How do you keep going? How do you keep going being Christian? How do you keep finding your joy in God? when, you know, you just seem to be hitting walls of opposition. Maybe for you, you know, you've tried to share your faith at uni. You've, you've reached out to a friend and they've just shut you down. Maybe even insulted you. You meet opposition. Maybe, you know, you've planned to meet up with someone just to pray and encourage them, but for some reason that just fell through. They got sick or there was some other obstacle and it just didn't happen and you got discouraged. Maybe, you know, you have plans to, to take that friend of yours to a conference or a talk and then they just don't show up. There's opposition, isn't there? 
We try to do these things for God, but so often things get in the way. Opposition comes. How do you keep going when opposition just keeps coming? Well, if you've been here for the past couple of weeks as we've opened up 1 Thessalonians, then you might remember the story of Paul in Acts chapter 17. And Paul, you know, you see back there, he he met opposition, didn't he? The Apostle Paul. In Acts 17 it says how he went to this little town, Thessalonica, how he went there and he preached the gospel. He, You know, for three weeks he was there going in the synagogue, telling people about Jesus, reasoning with them from the scriptures that Jesus really is God's king, come to rescue the world. He went there and he did that for three weeks and then what happened? Well, the Jews, they got jealous of Paul. Paul and the gospel of God that he brought, it was getting a, um, a really good reception. And the Jews, they got jealous of that. More people were following Paul and the gospel than they were hanging around with the Jews. So what did they do? Well, they got a bunch of men and they drove Paul out of town with violence. They drove him out of there. Opposition to the gospel. It's a nice tune. I'll have a backing track to a sermon. <laughs> um, opposition, you know, came to Paul. But you know what? It didn't shut him up. Paul didn't go, oh man, I got kicked out of Thessalonica, I'm just going to sit down and just have a break. Now, you know what Paul did? Maybe tonight you could read through Acts 17, it's a great chapter. You know what Paul did? Well, he went to the next town, he went to Brea, and he preached the gospel. He was there for a few weeks, and then exactly the same thing happened. He got kicked out of town. Violent men drove him out of town because he was telling people the good news about Jesus. So he's in Thessalonica, it happened. He's in Berea, same thing happened. Then he went down to Athens and he preached the gospel, and that was just Paul's life. You read about the Apostle Paul, and over and over he was telling people this good news of Jesus, and then opposition came over and over and over again. And yet, Paul just keeps going, doesn't he? He just keeps going strong for Jesus, he, he stays on track. And you know, I want to ask the question tonight, what is it about Paul that allows him to do that? Is it just that he's kind of Mediterranean and he can shake it off? (laughs) I don't think so. Now what is it about Paul? I think we actually see three things, three things that Paul has his confidence in, uh, three truths that he knows about God that actually allow him uh, to keep going even when opposition just keeps ramping up. See, tonight as we work our way through this passage in 1 Thessalonians, we're going to see three different truths. They're on your outline if you've got that open in front of you. Three truths that are true things about God that Paul has rock-solid confidence in. And that's what actually keeps him going. These truths are that Paul is confident, number one, that God saves people through his gospel word. Paul is confident in that. He's confident, secondly, that actually nothing in the world can stop God's plan of saving people. Thirdly, Paul is confident that glory is to come. Now is not the easy life. Paul knows that. Glory is to come. So come with me, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13, where we see firstly this first truth. God saves people through his gospel word. Let me read these verses out. Paul says this to start. He says, We constantly thank God for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it as not as the word of man, but as what it really is, the word of God, 
which is at work in you believers. You might remember back in chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul explained back there what that word of God was that he brought. He called it the gospel. And what's the gospel? Well, it's simply the good news of Jesus. It's the good news that Jesus, when he died on that cross, he paid for our sins. He won forgiveness for us. We who are in our sin were enemies of God, alienated from God. Jesus reconciles us to God through his death on that cross. That's the gospel. Jesus died for our sins and he rose for our hope. We can be back in right relationship with God simply by putting our trust in Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul, you know, he told that gospel over and over again. And I reckon the gospel is something that most Aussies just can't seem to understand. Most Aussies, I think, actually believe that to get right with God, to be in a right relationship with God, well, we just kind of please him, don't we? It's about our performance. If I do this, this, this and this, then God will probably accept me on that last day. Then I'll be okay. No, the Gospel actually says something far scandalous, far more scandalous than that. It says actually nothing you can do can get you in right relationship with God. Nothing you can do. Only thing is by trusting in the death of Jesus. Jesus has done it for us. Jesus has paid for our sins. That is the gospel. It's only by accepting this gift of Jesus' death in our place that we can have the hope of heaven. That's the message that Paul was preaching. He was preaching Christ crucified and risen. Christ died for our sins, risen for our hope. And do you know what happened? Do you know what happened when Paul went and he told that over and over again in Thessalonica? People believed it. People fell in love with that message. They said, yes, I, I, I knew I couldn't actually please God with my actions. I knew I needed forgiveness from God. I'm so thankful that Jesus died for me. People believed it. Verse 13, it says there, they received the gospel. And they accepted it, and it changed them. They became believers, they became Christians, they were saved. Paul, you see, he went and he preached that word of the cross. The good news that Jesus died for our sins, that he rose for our hope. And do you see what happened? Well, the people there, verse 13, they saw that that message, that was no human message, but it was God's message. That was the word of God. Only that message could come from God. Sure, Paul spoke it. It came out of his mouth. It was spoken by a human guy. But the Thessalonians, they accepted it. Not as the word of men, not just some story, some idea of how we might be able to be right with God. Not as the word of men, but as what it really is, it says there, the word of God. And the question is, that I want to ask is, well, how did they know? How did they know that Paul's message was from God? How do they know this was a God message, the creator of the universe message, not just Paul and some good ideas? Did they kind of work it out themselves? Did they go, oh yeah, that actually makes sense that maybe it's God's message? Or was Paul just really persuasive? You know, Paul was so convincing that it could only be God's message. Well, you know, sometimes at our place at the moment, I've got a little girl, uh, she's nearly three, and I do a little bit of this kind of checking out messages, you know, to see if they're genuine or not. And my daughter Josie, she'll come up to me and she'll say, Hey, Dad, 
Mum said I could have a bicky. <laughs> and I'd be like, I'll work this one out, you know. Do you, is, that, is that the word of my wife through Josie? Or is that just Josie hanging out for a bicky, you know? Because she loves bickies. They make these little smiley face bickies. You know, we get icing on like an arrowroot biscuit and, you know, you put little smarties in and you make a smiley face. She's into that at the moment. And so I'm always kind of trying to work out, you know, is this, what message is this? Is it the right one? See, see, in that kind of situation, it's all about me, isn't it? It's about if I can work it out. You know, I think for the Thessalonians, it's actually, actually the complete opposite. It's not about them trying to work out if this is God's message or just a human message. No, when you look at it here, you actually see in these verses that God makes the decision for them. Uh, you see that it's actually God who showed them that it was God's message. God revealed that to them. He opened their minds. He opened their hearts. See, have a look there in verse 13, just at the very, very start of it. Paul says something there. He says, we thank God constantly for this. See it there? We thank God constantly for this. What's the this that he's referring to? Well, the this is, you know, it's the rest of the sentence, isn't it? Paul thanks God that when the Thessalonians heard the word from Paul, they accepted it, not as the word of man, but as the word of God. That's the this, isn't it? See, Paul here, right from the very start, he actually gives God the credit for what the Thessalonians have been able to do. Now, Paul is thankful that God, by his Spirit, has revealed to them that this gospel message is the truth of God. It's not just some made-up story. It's no fairy tale. Now, God saves people, you see as the word is preached. Paul is thankful to God for it. He's not thankful for the intelligence of the Thessalonians or anything like that. No, God here, by his spirit, has opened their minds, opened their hearts to receive and accept the gospel as the true and living word of God. And Paul is so thankful for that. He is so thankful that it is God who does the saving. It is God who reveals himself to people. It is God who turns up and by his spirit convicts people of the truth of the gospel. And you know, that is something to be truly thankful for, isn't it? It's still happening today. We speak, we use feeble words, we try to point people towards Jesus and God comes alongside and he does his work. God takes our words, our our words try to point people towards Jesus. And he saves people through them. He changes their hearts. He opens their minds so they can see the good news of Jesus. He changes their lives for eternity as people see just what Jesus has done. See, Paul's confidence, this is what helps us stay on track, I think. Paul's confidence, it's not in himself. It's in God. Uh, It's in the fact that God uses our words, we partner with him, but it's God's power, isn't it, that saves, not ours. And I reckon if you believe that, if your confidence is not in yourself, but it's in God who saves, who loves to save, then we'll be like Paul, won't we? We'll just keep speaking for Jesus, despite opposition. We'll trust him, that as we get the word, the good news out there, that God will use that, regardless of opposition. See, secondly, the second thing that I think Paul has his confidence in is he's actually got rock-solid confidence 
that it doesn't matter how much opposition comes, God's plan to save people for eternity won't be stopped. Nothing is going to get in the way of God's plans. I mean, it'd be kind of easy, wouldn't it, for the guys at Cal State to just think, oh, maybe God's kind of not strong enough here. Maybe God's plans just aren't going to work out for what we're trying to do on the campus. But, you know, you kind of look at, well, you look at the first few books in the Bible, you read through the book of Acts, you read some early church history if you're into that sort of thing, and, you know, opposition to the gospel, it's nothing new. Uh, It's been going on from the very first days of the church. And when you think about it, what has the church done? What's well, gone from those 12 little apostles that Jesus commissioned to the ends of the earth? What did Jesus say it was going to be? He said it would be like a mustard seed. Smallest of little things, smallest seed, hardly even see it. And yet it becomes the biggest tree and people take shelter under its branches. The gospel, the church, has just grown and grown and grown and grown. It is unstoppable. And in verses 14 to 16, What we see in front of us here is that Paul is actually explaining that suffering and opposition just goes hand in hand with telling and speaking the gospel. So have a look there in verses 14 to 16. Paul says, For you, brothers, you became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. See, what's been happening from the very beginning of the church? Opposition, isn't it? People trying to stop the word of the gospel from going out that people might be saved. Paul says here that the Thessalonians, they became imitators or they became like the other churches around them who suffered. They suffered simply because they were preaching the good news of Jesus. In fact, in verse 15, Paul mentions how Jesus and the prophets were even killed at the hand of the Jews. Why were Jesus and the prophets killed? Well, it's because they brought the word of God, wasn't it? It's because they, they brought the true word of God, the true message of God. You look at the Old Testament, you just read through it. It'll probably take a little while, but you, you read through some of the Old Testament prophets and what do you see? They, they brought God's word to a situation and so often as they tried to call the nation of Israel back to God, back to repentance, what happened? They were just repeatedly rejected and killed. Ultimately, God sent his own son, Jesus. Jesus' message was pretty much the same thing. Repent, turn back to God for your sins, believe the gospel, believe you can have hope in me. And what happened? They nailed him to a cross. They killed him. It seems to me that if you ever thought that maybe the plan of God was going to fail, it would be at the cross, wouldn't it? You know, it would be when Jesus, this so-called Messiah, this King, is just hanging there dead. You ever thought, you know, maybe God didn't quite get it right there. It would be the cross, wouldn't it? When the Messiah dies, if ever maybe Satan won, 
It'll be when Jesus died. It just looks so hopeless, doesn't it? I mean, you've got to think about it from the disciples' perspective for a moment, don't you? I mean, imagine being just a disciple there. Uh, you've been following this guy. He's been telling you for three years that he's going to bring his kingdom, that it's going to be a worldwide kingdom, it's going to be huge. And what happens? They arrest him, they mock him, they crucify him, they kill him. And what do the disciples do? Scatter. They're gone. What happened? They thought God's plan failed, didn't they? This opposition to the gospel. But do you know, so often God works in ways that our human logic just could never even imagine. We can't imagine at the moment why IVCF is being persecuted in this way. We can't imagine how God's plans will be brought about or how it would be good that they would actually be de-recognised, but I'm sure God can. I'm sure God can because of the cross, right? So, I mean, the disciples at that moment when Jesus died, they never would have imagined that that would be the way that God would bring about his plans. They never would have imagined that that was how salvation for all mankind could come about. But it was, wasn't it? Christ crucified at the hands of lawless men. It's the very way that any of us can be saved, by putting our trust in him, as he takes our sin on his shoulders. It's a little bit like the Lord of the Rings. Any Lord of the Rings fans out there? That's good. Nice to hear. I haven't had a Lord of the Rings illustration for a while. I thought it was time. <laughs> you know when you watch the Lord of the Rings, you're getting towards the last, um, the last movie if you're a movie buff. I'm more of a movie than a book person. Don't judge me for that. Um, you know, I reckon when I'm watching the Lord of the Rings, that last one, whatever it's called, I get lost. Thank you. You know, don't you reckon it would be easier... If they just went to the Black Gate of Mordor and got an army and charged it down and did their thing, wouldn't that be more logical just to do that? But what happens? Well, you know, Frodo and Sam, they just kind of quietly make their way to Mount Doom. They take this unexpected route. It looks weak. It looks hopeless. You think the whole time that they're going to fail. You're like, what are you guys even doing? You look hopeless. What happens in the end? They win, don't they? Friends, make no mistake, God will win. Sometimes we can't understand his plans. We can't understand the way oppression works and how God can use that for his good, for the spread of the gospel. You know, so often people are oppressed, people are beaten for spreading the word of the gospel. We don't really see that much in Australia. But people keep getting saved. The gospel keeps going. Even though opposition rises, God is slowly but surely bringing about his plans to save people as they hear that word of the gospel. You know, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, he said, On this rock, that is the gospel, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Nothing will stop God from building his kingdom. And Paul knew this, didn't he? That's what Paul had his confidence in. Paul knew that nothing would stop God from saving people and growing his kingdom. I wonder if you believe that.
Do you believe that the one unstoppable force in the world is the spread of the gospel? Finally, thirdly, and this flows out of what we've already looked at, Paul has confidence in glory to come. Glory to come. See, the good life for the Christian is not now. It's not now. Uh, the good life, in fact, comes when Jesus returns as king. It comes when, when Jesus wipes away all sin and death and he sets up his new creation. That's what's going to happen. Jesus has promised that, that good life comes then, glory comes then, for all those who have put their trust in the good news of Jesus, for all those who have stayed on track with Jesus till the end. And it's actually because Paul has such confidence in this future hope that what he wants to do in these last few verses is he just wants to keep encouraging Christians to stay on track and keep that as their hope, to keep staying on track with Jesus until the very end. So you have a look there in verses 17 and 18, uh, just how much Paul wanted to encourage and build up the Thessalonians and get them to keep staying on track with Jesus. In verse 17 he says, Since we were torn away from you, brothers, that is, because he was literally torn away from them, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavoured the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Paul, you see, he wanted to return to Thessalonians. He wanted to encourage them in their faith. He wanted to see them standing firm. He's kind of got this crazy love for them. Paul is so convinced of the word of God and of the plan of God, that he just wants to do anything in his strength to encourage them to keep believing, to keep on track despite opposition. I reckon it's a rebuke to us, isn't it? I mean, when was the last time you actually tried to encourage someone in their faith? When was the last time you had that hard conversation with a friend because you knew they were making a dumb decision? And a decision that would lead them away from Jesus. When was the last time that you saw someone in the SU and you went, I haven't seen them at CU since the start of the year. I'm going to ask them where they're up to with Jesus. I mean, do you feel it? Paul feels it. Have a look there at verse 17 again. He says, we were torn away from you in person, but not in heart. My great desire is to see you face to face and I may encourage you. I long for the day that we feel what Paul feels for other Christians. Uh, we all have friends who, who we know are making bad decisions, decisions that are actually rejecting the word of God, treating it just like a human book, take it or leave it kind of thing. <coughs> we all have friends who we actually see are, are being led away from Jesus as they're chasing the pleasures of this world. And friends, these decisions, they have eternal consequences. Now I don't, I don't say this to make us feel guilty. I say it because I want us to love each other. I want us to look out for each other. I want us to, to be like Paul. In fact, I want us to be like Paul in the way that he actually looks forward to that last day when Jesus ushers in the new creation. When, and when we actually celebrate with great joy this fact that we stand firm together until the very end. 
So have a look there in verses 19 to 20. Paul says that his hope, his joy, his crown will be in the new creation. Uh, Do you know what Paul's talking about there? Do you know what he's saying, you know, that his crown will be? Well, I'll read it out. He says, for what is our hope? What is our joy? What is our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ? He says, is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Paul calls these Thessalonians his crown. They are his great joy in heaven. Paul's reward in heaven, you see. Uh, What he longs for, it's not a big mansion, it's not a place with a swimming pool or anything like that. No, his crowning glory, his pleasure, his joy in heaven is actually seeing people who he has encouraged in their faith standing there with him for all eternity. You are our glory and our joy, Paul says. Just imagine it. Eternity in heaven and day after day people walk up to you and they say something like, hey, thank you so much for that conversation you had with me. That really helped me stick with Jesus. Hey, thank you so much for being my Bible study leader during my years of uni. That really helped me stick with Jesus. Thank you so much for being my youth group leader. Thank you for being that person who actually walked up to me in the SU and told me the gospel. I know that I didn't become a Christian there and then, but that actually got me thinking. And and years down the track, I remembered that and I became a Christian. Thank you so much for telling me about Jesus. That's Paul's glory. That's his joy. To stand there on that last day with all these people who he's encouraged through the word of the gospel, the truth of Jesus, standing there with him. What a celebration that will be. Friends, glory is to come. And the glory that is coming is the glory of being there with Jesus, with millions of people who love him, (coughs) and with people who we've encouraged, people who have encouraged us, people who have believed the word of God, who have kept preaching it despite opposition, all until God's plans have finally come true. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for your love to us. Father, you have sent your Son Jesus to come and die on that cross that we might be forgiven of our sins and have new life that begins now and lasts for eternity. Father, I want to pray for every single person in this room tonight that we would stay firm until the end. Father, help us to persevere despite opposition, despite worldly temptation, despite all those things. Father, help us to keep each other on track. Father, help us to love one another, not just not by being nice to each other, but sometimes by speaking really hard words to each other because we make dumb decisions that lead us away from Jesus. Father, would you give us a confidence like Paul has, a confidence that you save people through your word and by your spirit, a confidence that that your plans of salvation and glory to come are unstoppable. 
And Father, would we give our lives to that end? Pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake, for his glory. Amen.